Welcome in, Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, October 11th, the year of our Lord, 2020. The show so jam-packed tonight, we could have it very well tattooed on our lower back. Georgia rolled, Clemson rolled. We're going to talk about Alabama surviving who? Ole Miss. Yeah, we're going to talk about A&M getting a big win. How about that? Some of us saw that coming. Others told us we were idiots. That's okay. There's room for everyone on the show. OU Texas. I don't necessarily know if it deserves a game breakdown, only because, as we told you, that game should exist on its own planet. There was no skill in predicting it. There's no really sense to wrap it up because it was like an enigma into and of itself. But we, we will talk about Texas football for a little while tonight. We will also talk about what used to be LSU football. I don't know how you want to go about that. I know how we'll go about it. Uh, we are going to update you on the takeover by the air raid of the SEC is, uh, continues to be ongoing. And we're also going to talk about a number of other things, including, and this is rare, uh, to my knowledge, Colin, we haven't done this, but we've got a game so big this upcoming week, we're going to do, we're going to keep one eye on the road and we're going to take one eye and we're going to peel it off towards Georgia, Alabama, which is this Saturday night in Tuscaloosa, Alabama on the mothership, CBS at uh, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. The Ramen Noodle Express is smoking. So it's smoking so much we may add a second engine onto it. We went 5-1 and one this week. We are now at 58% against the spread to date this season. I have already tweeted out our early best bet. If you don't know what it is already, well, I advise you follow me on Twitter first off, at LateKickJosh. Not only did the early play for this week already get released, I added on to the five that we had handed out on air early yesterday morning. Gave you South Carolina, so we cashed in on that one too. It was a really good week for us. The only one that we didn't hit was the first one we gave out. Let's not let that trend continue, shall we? But we're going to give out our early best bet, and we're going to have so much more. I, we got so much to get to. I have no clue how we're going to get it in in under like seven hours, but we're going to try. So let's crank it up. And we're going to go in really no particular order here, but our spotlight game, the one that we were paying the most attention to this last week, was Tennessee at Georgia. Georgia ended up rolling over Tennessee, 44-21. to We have things that I have not mentioned on the show yet. I used to do it all the time when we were independent down in Columbus. I call them padlock stats. And a padlock stat is essentially this. If on Friday afternoon I were to tell you just one thing that's going to happen about the game, let's say it's a pre-recorded game and I've already seen it, you haven't, and I can tell you just one thing about the game, you could know just from that one thing what the outcome was going to be. And there was a padlock stat in this game. I think you know where I'm going. And it is that Tennessee... Minus one total yards rushing statistic. Yes, I am counting quarterback sack yardage in here. Even if I don't, it's still an abysmal number. You get the idea. Do you remember the path that we painted? Had a lot of folks run in their mouth in the comment section of the preview video because they, in typical fashion, come in on Saturday morning and don't really watch the whole video. They just kind of get snippets of it and they hear what they think you said instead of what you actually said. When we predict games with a double-digit favorite, we do not just do straight up, straight up, straight up. That's stupid to me because there is a double-digit favorite in the game for a reason. So what we do is we take the preview video and we paint the path to what could happen if an upset were to unfold. How would the upset happen? And the upset for Tennessee was going to require a couple of things. We talked about Jarrett Garantano needing to play largely mistake-free. Kind of did in the first half. Went downhill quickly in the second half. We also talked about uh, turnovers and and time of possession to Bob plays, bounce of ball plays. They were going to need to go Tennessee's way. They didn't, and to be honest with you, Tennessee ended up not being close in either department. So let's dive into it. To give you an idea of how good Georgia's defense was yesterday, aside from what your eyeballs showed you, we thought that Tennessee needed a critical amount of third down and fours or less. Yesterday, they were four of 17 on third down. And let me give you a really good reason why. Georgia did a phenomenal job at getting them in these situations. Tennessee had 17 third down tries yesterday. Their average down and distance on third downs was third and seven and a half. That's getting it done. And they are very one-dimensional, as are most offenses, when you get them in third and seven or greater. They are adding, they being Georgia, adding a pass rush this year, the likes of which we have not seen them have. We've seen them be able to stop the run. We've seen them have a pretty jam-up secondary. Have not seen the kind of pass rush the likes of which they have right now. They got five sacks yesterday. That's not always the end-all, be-all stat, but you normally don't get sacks if you don't have a good pass rush, and it was constant in the second half, and they played a a too-high pre-snap look and still got pressure on the quarterback majority of the second half. If you were to reset this half, which is 
sort of where the optimism for Tennessee, I want to say, peaked in the game. They get that big goal line stand. The game started off with the botched snap by Trey Hill, who ended up being one of the MVPs of this game, in my opinion, but not early on. But it's 7 to nothing. Everyone's going crazy. And so if you reset it at the half, Tennessee had an excellent goal line stand. They are up. They go into the locker room leading. I looked at it. You, some of you guys were conversing with me back and forth on Twitter. Even though Georgia trailed at the half, I really felt like they laid the foundation for what they were about to do in the second half in the first half. And I said, and I'll repeat now, if you were to look at the critical factors that we had been talking about, they had already run 44 plays offensively. They know they have a significant roster advantage. That's the that's the benefit of recruiting like Kirby Smart does. There are going to be very few times, if you've got a close game, there are going to be very few times where you're going to come out of a locker room for a second half and not be able to rely on the fact that you can just lean. And to someone who is in the opposite situation, like Pruitt was yesterday, it's like you've got 14 leaks and you're trying to plug the 14 leaks with 10 fingers. It just It's overwhelming. And so you get to lean and lean and lean, and eventually things break, and it breaks your way far more times than not, and that's what happened yesterday. They had really good balance. I would, I would say Georgia had decent balance offensively in the first half. It's not, it's not like they're going to go up and down the field like Alabama does, but they don't need to because they can play defense quite differently than Alabama does right now. More on the tide in just a little bit. I mentioned Trey Hill. I know a lot of people have a lot of different opinions of where a game turns. Trey Hill had a, a horrible botch snap to start this game. It put seven on the board early for Tennessee. But there was a moment. You talk about how a game swings. And remember, this is not baseball. So they score in threes and sevens. So one or two plays could mean 10 to 14 points. There was a swing moment. You start the second half, and Georgia has forced a couple of turnovers. Tennessee was up, remember, to start the second half. Georgia forces a couple turnovers, but they don't really capitalize. They only got six points off of them. So even after those two forced turnovers in plus territory, Georgia's only up two. And then Adam Anderson shoots off the edge like the cannon that he has been the last couple of weeks. Phenomenal player, only getting better. He and Kyrus Jackson, both on defense and offense respectively, have come on really strong. And those are not true freshmen. Those are guys who are program guys. They paid their dues. They didn't transfer just because they weren't starting. And so now things are paying off. Anyway, Adam Anderson knocks the ball loose. Tennessee recovers, but they're way backed up against their goal line. They got a punt. And Georgia starts their drive, and there's a pass over the middle, and it gets fumbled. And Trey Hill, all it looks like, 350 pounds of them, barreling in pursuit behind the play, and he's just there. And I had some of you sniping back and forth with me on Twitter. Well, that's just the kind of lucky break Georgia gets. That's not luck. That's not luck. Luck is if you have your eyes closed and something, a $20 bill just randomly falls in your hand. Trey Hill is doing exactly what he's coached to do. Trey Hill, he's an offensive lineman. Plays already, balls downfield now. It is your job to pursue behind that thing. Not because you're planning on a fumble happening, but because it could happen. And you need to be there. He was there. He recovers that ball. So instead of Tennessee being down two, having the ball at midfield, Georgia gets the ball back. First and ten, fresh set of downs. They go down and score. Nine-point advantage at that point. Game ends up out of reach. That's a huge, huge turning point that I don't know that a lot of people necessarily look back on in ways where they look back on those turnovers previous because I mean Georgia had squandered an opportunity to really drown Tennessee at that point so we got to give more credit to Stetson Bennett I've you some people say I've been critical of him I just think I've been honest about him I mean I don't want to belabor that point anymore, but he is doing some really, really good things here. What he's doing, number one, I don't ever view this as a slight. Uh, he is managing games the, exactly the way they're asking him to manage them. And secondly, some of his best decisions aren't even on a stat sheet. The ability to check a ball down or just eat it, sometimes even take a sack or throw a ball away, those are some of the most important decisions Stetson Bennett could be making in this offense. They were also, and he's very good at extending plays on third down, uh, to the degree that they need to, to extend drives. So this was not a world-class showing by Georgia's offensive line. I would say good, definitely not great. I would say a good enough performance from that stable of running backs, definitely not great. I'm still waiting for a premier back to emerge on this team. You hope it's Zamir White. It may end up being Zamir White. McIntosh has shown you signs. Kendall Milton, if he can get ball security under control, that's a guy who was a five-star out of high school. He's a true freshman. But I look back on guys like Kyrus Jackson. I look back on guys like Adam Anderson. This is as versatile a team and as multiple a team as Kirby Smart has had in his time at Georgia. If they were to have an elite quarterback, this would be the overwhelming favorite to win the national championship. As it stands, they dominated Tennessee. They once again exceeded what my personal expectation was for them in terms of a final score. 
and now they set up a showdown on the road at Alabama this Saturday, and that's something we're going to talk about more before the end of this show. Let's move on, because we have so much to get to. All right, making good time so far, Colin. A&M 41, Florida 38. I got to be honest with you, and you can check the tape for reference. This, to me, was not that hard to see coming. Sometimes we swing and miss mightily on our predictions. This one, our model nailed, we nailed, and I didn't even think it was that hard to see coming. Remember, I think, and I told you last week, what looked like a discernible matchup advantage for Florida, I never thought was one. People had taken the blimp view. Remember the late kick blimp, 50,000 foot? They don't fly quite that high, but you understand what I mean. People had looked and they said, all right, well, Florida's got a good passing game. And on the other hand, A&M just got smoked by Alabama. So they're secondary suspect. Good passing game versus suspect secondary. Florida should roll, right? Well, those two things were true. But here's what else was true. We told you Kellen Mond did not play a bad game against Alabama. There was a blowout final score. We did not think that was indicative of the kind of performance that he put on and the kind of performance he was capable of. And the second part was... We thought that Alabama met certain freeze point criteria, and that's just a reference that is common around here. Uh, Basically, it meant there were certain factors on Alabama's team that were going to be insurmountable for A&M to overcome. We did not think Florida met that threshold. We also thought Kellen Mond was going to have possibly a career day. I mean, we used that kind of language last week. Well, Kellen Mond had a career day. We'll get to his numbers in a second. This, I don't think we... Probably we did not put enough emphasis on how big a hinge game this was. I just told you I didn't think it was a must-win for Jimbo Fisher. In the context of the season, it was. But in the context of his career, I mean, there were some folks out there talking about hot seat if he loses. Jimbo Fisher not on a hot seat. The only hot seat Jimbo Fisher sits on are the heated seats in that Lexus he pulls up to work in every day in. That's the only hot seat Jimbo Fisher's on. There's nothing about his job that would have been in jeopardy either way. But... As it relates to the 2020 season, they lose this game, they're dead in the water. All of their preseason aspirations, contending in the SEC West, possibly contending for a playoff spot, all that's out of the window. You don't think they're capable of that. They do think they're capable of that. And until they're out of it, they will think they're capable of that. And so in that fourth quarter, everything's hinging. And all of a sudden, they win that game, and you go from being a two-loss team who's largely out of it to, wait a second, because now here's what you do. In the aftermath, immediate aftermath, You watch Jimbo yelling all over the place, drinking out of a bottle with no label on it on the field, and then you say, oh, man, A&M just won. Okay, let me see who they play next. Hmm, Mississippi State, okay, Arkansas, South Carolina, Tennessee, Ole Miss, LSU, Auburn. Where's where's the big – oh, they don't have a large remaining hurdle, do they? Now, in collection, this is a schedule easily they could lose two to three games against. But there's also a chance – that A&M could be favored in every one of these games. And so they got past that hurdle, and now you see what I mean when I say hinge game. Kellen Mond had a career day yesterday. Uh, Hat tip, Kellen Mond. We didn't think he played bad against Bama. We thought he was poised for this. 25 of 35 for 338, three touchdowns. Uh, More importantly, he didn't make a ton of critical errors that cost him the game. A&M owned third down. Owned third down. 12 of 15. I think Mullen said 13 of 15. Either way, it's bad. A&M had 32 first downs in this football game yesterday. Big concern. We talked about it ad nauseum. I'm glad we didn't have a third or fourth show last week because we would have beaten it even more to death. We talked about the previous week for Florida and how many plays that defense was on the field for against South Carolina. And they beat South Carolina. No one looks at these critical factors. Just like Bama beat Ole Miss last night. So no one cares they were on the field for like 90 plays. Well, you will Saturday night when they play Georgia. But Florida's defense was gassed at the end of that South Carolina game. And we knew there was going to be a point eventually in this game against Texas A&M where last week's 83 plays showed up. And it happened in the second half. Here were the numbers. A&M, 303 to 192 total yards advantage. A&M, 40 to 23 total plays advantage. A&M doubled them up in time of possession. A&M owned the second half. And that was ripe for happening based on what happened the week before. Isaiah Spiller was huge in this game for A&M. 27 carries, 174 yards, two touchdowns. What did they find, though? As we come out of this thing, it doesn't mean anything if they win and then they get upset next week against Mississippi State. And they are less than a touchdown favorite in that game, by the way. So 
Any, if you haven't already been convinced, anything, friends, anything can happen in this conference any given week. What did they find? And we'll, we'll just need the benefit of time to know that. When we look back and we reference, what did they find? I mean, what if that was the spark that finally lit things for A&M and they go further than they have at any point under Jimbo? They lost another receiver in this game. feels like they're down like half a dozen receivers. That roster's good enough to win every game remaining on their schedule, even with that being the case. But what did they find? As for Florida, if you listen to Dan Mullen in the postgame, a lot of people are focusing on how many he thinks should be in attendance at Florida home games. I don't care about all that. What I care about as it relates to this team is what he said about his defense. And I don't have the exact quote here. Well, I do. I'm not going to look it up and bore you with reading all of it. But they had, um, I mean, imagine his frustration. Florida has eight possessions. That's all. They only had eight offensive possessions yesterday. They scored on six of them. That's a pretty good percentage to hit on. And they still lost. Dan Mullen thinks that he should win 100 games out of 100 when they score on six out of eight offensive possessions. And yet because of third down and his defense not being able to get off the field, that's about as bad as you're going to see it under Florida. I mean, we got LSU at Florida this week. I don't know what the total is there. I'm not one to tell you to blindly bet overs, but if it's only double digits, I'd probably lean close to that. Uh, It's just Dan Mullen put everything on the table after this game. He suggested every possible move could be on the table after this game. So a lot of you in Gainesville are very upset with Todd Grantham. I perfectly understand that. I don't think you're alone. I think your head coach, when he's talking about basic philosophy, personnel, packages, just the in-game functionality of his defense, he's not talking about players necessarily. He's talking about some procedural things. So we'll see how the week progresses down there. But big win for A&M. Florida's got to get right back. I mean, we're going to have Florida A&M, and that's a rare situation where both of those teams are in wounded animal mode, which always makes for fascinating theater. All right, let's get to, oh boy, uh, the football game, for lack of better arable terms, that happened in Oxford, Mississippi last night. It's a good thing we moved the start time for this one back 90 minutes, because, uh, hmm, did you see what they warmed up in? Hey, Ole Miss didn't warm up at all. They just no-showed. Didn't even show up for warm-ups. Alabama 63 Ole Miss, 48. It was not a basketball game, but it sure does look like it. Another cautionary betting tale. For those of you who were just blindly following the weather, stop betting weather-based unders. You don't know what you're doing. Stop doing that. Do not light your money on fire just because the Doppler radar says it's going to rain. Anything the Doppler tells you, an odds maker has long since taken into account in his number. So, you guys got burned on that last night. Bama fans saying they don't recognize this team right now? You should. I, I've heard a lot. I've talked to a lot of you today. I've read a lot. And a lot of you are saying, I don't even recognize this defense. I don't even recognize this team right now. I don't know why. It hasn't been that long, really, guys. You've seen this team before. In fact, you prepared for them and played them. Two years ago, it was the Orange Bowl. That is you now. You are Oklahoma. You are that team that at one time you got a 28 to nothing lead on. You remember that team? That's that team where they went up and down the field on everyone, but they didn't play a lick of defense, and that's why you thought they were ripe to be exposed in the playoff, and you were right. That's who you are now. For Well, there is no better. Just for reality's sake, that's what Alabama is. There's a big difference, a couple of big differences. One of the big differences is Alabama's defense is um, significantly more talented, let's say, than that Oklahoma defense was. And you know what that means? It's not a talent problem they have on their hands now. They are the worst third-down team in America at the FBS level at the moment. Do, do, you, do you hear what I said? The worst. Not, not bottom five, not bottom 15. The worst. Ole Miss had 647 yards on them on 86 plays yesterday. Remember that for this Saturday. That defense, not exactly the deepest unit in the world, 86 plays. That, as shocking as it is, Not really the most shocking tale that the stat line tells from this game. 268 rushing yards for Ole Miss. That's the shocker to me. It was a 29 to 57 pass to run ratio for Ole Miss, which is the total inverse of what you would expect had happened if I told you, man, Ole Miss, you know, they uh, they scored 48 on Bama. Oh, they must have bombed away on them. They got their passing yards, but it was 268 rushing yards. I got to be honest, I thought Lane Kiffin was probably shocked at how easily they ran the ball. 
It wasn't a bunch of gadget plays either. It wasn't a bunch of sweeps, and it wasn't a bunch of misdirection. It was just kind of running right at them. You know, the stuff that basically Kiffin probably thought they'd give a token try to, and all right, we'll try this stuff just to say we did, and they'll shut it down, but at least we will have shown it. And then they rip off 12, and they rip off 14 and 8, and he says, well, I mean, let's keep doing it for now. Like, eventually they'll stop it, but let's keep doing it. Gain a 10, gain a 15, gain a 30, gain a 7. Uh, let's just keep doing it. And they kept doing it, and it kept working. It never really changed. The whole game kept working. And I got to tell you, it's kind of a helpless feeling. I, I know, you look at Nick Saban, this is not one of those games where he was irate on the sideline. He's like that when he's got a lead. When he knows he's in real trouble, he has a different demeanor. You normally don't see it against Ole Miss or teams he's favored by three-plus touchdowns against, but you saw it yesterday. And some of the things they have, I think, are terminal flaws defensively. I mean, tackling, for instance. I think they missed over 30 of them last night. That's a bad month. That's a bad couple of months for Alabama. They gave up six touchdowns in a league game last night. They gave up six in all of 2011. Their entire league schedule, they gave up six in 2011. They gave up six of them to Ole Miss last night. To me, just saying, oh, we need to tackle better, that's like sitting at a baseball game in the bottom of the third inning. You've already walked five guys, and you just can't find the strike zone. And someone in the crowd yells, throw strikes, like you're not trying to. You don't develop the ability to throw strikes in the middle of a baseball game. You either entered the game with that ability or it's not happening that day. Most of the time, you either have sound fundamentals by the time you get to week four of a football season or you got to wait till next year. And hopefully you got to work on that stuff in the offseason. So Nick Saban said he still believes in this roster. He still believes in these players. I mean, for their sake, I hope he's right. But you would really think, again, when you look at that yardage total, you would really think, that someone must have just bombed away on their corners. And that is totally the opposite of what happened. The reality here is Sertain and Job, especially Sertain, plays so well, you don't even see him. He's got to come on a corner blitz for you to even see him. He totally takes a receiver out of the game. And he and Job did a good job last night. I wrote it down, actually. Uh, the guys they covered last night had to combine one reception for 11 yards. That's taking the top two receivers out. Here's the troubling statistic. Ole Miss had a couple of running backs and a tight end that combined for 462 and six touchdowns. Linebackers lost. Safeties lost. There's some preseason All-Americans on Alabama's team right now that wouldn't crack fourth-team All-SEC. But those aren't the wildest stats because as bad as their defense was, their offense is a machine unlike anything I've seen in quite a while. I gave Colin this stat earlier I think to this very moment, Colin thinks I'm lying about it. I would think I'm lying about it if I didn't watch this game bell-to-bell last night. I've never seen a stat like this. I've watched people play games on Xbox. I've watched Little League games. I've read the score about Georgia Tech and Cumberland. I have never seen a stat like this. All right, got to credit uh, Roger Sherman from The Ringer for this one. Ole Miss's defense last night prevented 41 yards of total offense. You never hear that stat because it's insane. So let me break down what I just said for you. They prevented 41 yards. Here's what that means. Alabama had 11 total possessions last night offensively. Out of the starting field position they have, if you figure what the perfect game for Alabama would have been, it would have been 764 yards. They got 723 of 764 total possible yards last night. They punted once on their 40-yard line, or I think Ole Miss's 40-yard line, and then they had a turnover at the one-yard line. Ole Miss's defense prevented only 41 of total possible yards Alabama could have gotten. That is 11 living, breathing human beings on a football field with scholarships to play in the SEC, and yet that is as close to playing against air as you'll ever come. I'm not kidding. They got 723 out of 764 possible yards. The worst team in the history of this sport should be able to hold you to less than that. So that that number was mind-boggling to me. But Nick Saban did not look nearly as bothered as a lot of folks, including myself, would be if I were him last night. So I don't know. A couple of things could be true here as we're about to move on. It either could be that he's already resolved in his mind that changes are coming and he just couldn't say it last night. Or he's resolved in his mind long before last night that this is who they are this year. Therefore, he wasn't quite as shocked as everyone else was. Which one of those things is true? Tell you one good thing, though. They did have over 300 rushing. So 
We knew that that was coming last night. It, we just didn't know that they were going to need all 306 of them in meaningful action. All right, let's continue. We're rolling on here. We're hitting as many games as we can. Uh, there was a mess in Dallas yesterday. Just an absolute mess. Beautiful weather, but a mess nonetheless. Uh, Oklahoma 53, Texas 45. This one goes to four overtimes. There was a period of yesterday. If you watched the early games and then that overlap window where the early games are wrapping up and then the early games are starting or the mid-afternoon games are starting, you got Oklahoma 53 over Texas 45, and you got that in four overtimes. You got other games starting, and it's just, it was crazy for about an hour stretch there. There was zero skill, as we said last week, in ever attempting to predict this. And there was already very little skill in predicting these games. We didn't think there was any skill in this, and we got exactly what we thought we would get. We had both teams with over 100 yards in total penalties. I think we had, yes, six combined turnovers. It was just everything that you would think would go wrong went wrong. Oklahoma ended up winning the game after benching their starting quarterback midway through the first half. So everything that could go wrong, everything that would happen in a game like this ended up happening. Oklahoma, man. I mean, they turn it over three times early. They, as I said, bench Spencer Rattler. And that's who won the game, just to give you an idea of how crazy this one was. Uh, The Texas, here's what's just totally depressing. If I'm a Texas fan, I don't know how you guys do it. I really don't. I feel so bad, uh, and this is not a fan base that many people take much pity on, but I don't know how you guys do it. You, um, your defense did everything largely that you could ask of them yesterday. And yet it's just offense is not there. Just not there. You got a quarterback with years under his belt now, and this is not Ellinger's fault by any stretch. Don't get me wrong. I'm shocked at how ineffective their run game is. Outside of him, Ellinger had, um, I can't remember how many, he had a bulk of their rushing yards because outside of him, they had 11 carries for 29 yards. You're talking about a guy having to shoulder the load himself. And as a result, I mean, even some some subpar defenses can limit you at times. And they had a long string of three and outs consecutively, and yet they're sitting there with all the experience at quarterback against a first-year starter who's been benched and already came back in the game, and yet they're the ones having to play catch-up late in the game. Very uninspired. It's just for another week in a row, they look so ill-prepared. At times, they just look lifeless. I don't know how that's possible in this game. I don't know how it's possible, period, but much less in this game. Mistakes all over the place. It, you know what it's a reflection on. Uh, you know I'm not in the business of calling for folks' jobs on this show. I don't, I don't like doing that, but I mean, it, it's obvious to you and I who that's a reflection on. So Oklahoma, if I'm a Sooner fan, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say here. If I'm in a rebuilding year and I get this win in a rebuilding year, it makes me, it makes me go back to, I remember when Tuberville was at Auburn and Auburn wasn't winning national titles. I mean, they weren't really even contending for national titles, but they were beating Alabama every year. Now that's not Oklahoma. Oklahoma has been in the playoff every year under Riley, but in your down year, if you still get a win over Texas and they got all the experience at quarterback, they got every reason that they should be beating you that year, things aren't all that bad. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'd like to do a split, and, and I can. I don't know why I say I'd like to. I'd love to do a split. Take the very moment in time that Rattler got benched yesterday and then draw a line in the sand and do pre-benching and post-benching and just watch how the rest of his season plays out. And I guarantee you that'll be looked at as some seminal moment. And that was the, that was the Rubicon. And once he crossed that, then everything sort of settled into him and the tumblers fell into place and he figured out how to play quarterback and not turn the ball over. But I, to go back to Texas, before we move on here, I know there's been a lot of talk over really the last several weeks, but really now, because this was the one. I told you, I thought Texas had to have this one. I thought Oklahoma wanted to have it. There's, there was a difference to me, and Texas did not get what I thought they had to have. Well, you can't be saying someone has to have something, and then they don't get it, and you come back on the air the next night, and you say, all right, well, on to the next one. Not that I'm calling for anything to happen this week, but I'm, I just take you back. Like I think some things got decided yesterday. I don't think those things will happen tomorrow or the next day, but I think some things got decided because I want to take you back as we move on here to the offseason when we heard the staff over at Horns 24-7. They interviewed Chris Del Conte, who is the athletic director at Texas. And what I took from that, it's still available. You can still go watch this for yourself. What I took from their conversation with him was he was essentially telling you there's a big difference in us needing to build the aircraft versus us having the aircraft built and just needing to find the right pilot. Because right now, 
They're doing everything else they need to do out there. They got the entire infrastructure in place, and that's like having the plane built. If you don't have the pilot in place, relatively speaking, it's a lot easier to just go find a new pilot. And your big, pretty, brand new, sparkly plane, every pilot worth their salt wants to fly it. That's where I think Texas football is right now. Other week six takeaways, and we got a lot of them. Boy, do we have a lot of them. In a way, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of yesterday. LSU lost at Missouri, 45-41. to 41. Um, I don't view this game as being particularly worth breaking down from a, you know, an intrinsic box score point of view. It was a mess. LSU is just a mess. And Connor Bazelak is the quarterback at Missouri that we thought was going to play the entire game against Tennessee. When we took a flyer on Missouri and the points, we thought Bazelak was going to play the whole game, and, and we thought he was good enough to hang with Tennessee. They didn't do that. They did more than hang with LSU. Defense getting zero pressure for the Tigers. And, uh, you know, afterwards, I was reading some of you guys talk about, and I was reading some of the beat writers who cover LSU talk about what Bo Pelini didn't do. So Bo Pelini's under a lot of fire right now because their defense is non-existent outside of playing Vanderbilt, who makes everyone's defense show up. And a lot of people were talking about, well, you know, he brought four early and he couldn't get pressure, so why didn't he bring this and why didn't he shift that? And I'm just, here's what I would humbly suggest. It's not like I'm running the Bo Pelini fan club here. I, it, I don't think, I find it very hard to believe that Bo Pelini stood there and watched that happen and never thought to himself, we need to do something different. Here's what I think. What I think is they don't have players who are prepared. I've said this several times now. They do not have players who are adequately prepared. You can blame a whole litany of people for that. You can blame the head coach for it. You can blame coordinator. But there's a difference in a coordinator who has decades of experience under his belt, there's a difference in what he has in his head versus what a player has in their head. Because if the guy with all the years of information in his head cannot put that information in the player's head, it doesn't matter what the coach knows. If the players are incapable of carrying it out, you have a different set of issues. I would be highly shocked if Bo Pelini didn't think at any point yesterday, we need to bring this pressure package or that pressure package. What he probably did was he said... I got a very limited, I mean, here's my defensive playbook. There's like 20% of it that we're probably, we're probably at a position where these players are prepared to run. So there's a lot out here in this gray area, but I can't call this. They don't even know what that is. That's kind of the way I watch LSU, and I think they're at right now. That's what they feel like to me. So Ed Orgeron was kind of like Dan Mullen after this one yesterday. Orgeron was a lot more blunt in saying, uh, we gotta, we got to make changes. Everything's going to be on the table. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? it, it we, we said at the time in the offseason, when this man kept talking about Dave Aranda, and Dave Aranda's gone and Bo Pelini's in, and he kept he was adamant. He kept saying, we are going to be in a much better position defensively this year than we were last year. I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I had my doubts, but I was going to give him benefit of the doubt because the guy was right all of last year. But you got to look around now, and you you got to ask yourself, what was he seeing? What could he possibly have been seeing? Because there's no way they were better then than they are now. So what was he seeing? I have no idea. Uh, Clemson rolled Miami. This was a wood chipper. They just body bagged him. We talked last week about how this was really the first chance for Miami to not be in the pool. They had been in the pool. They could swim in the shallow end, but this was really the first time that this new combination, Rhett Lashley, at offensive coordinator, and Derek King, new philosophy down there. This is the first time that they were going to step off that ledge and start walking out into the deep end. And once that cliff goes down further and further and further, you can't touch the bottom anymore. And that's when you find out if you can swim. And Miami couldn't swim last night. Not against Clemson. They couldn't. Losing is not the worst part here. I mean, they were a double-digit underdog. There weren't many people that expected Miami to win this thing. I think some people expected them to compete. And they didn't compete. And they looked like... um, they looked inferior mentally at times. Physically, they are inferior. Most people are inferior to Clemson. But they, they looked intimidated at times. They looked affected by the situation. I'm trying to put it in as politically correct terms as I can. Uh, you Miami fans have not been as kind to your team today, nor should you. I mean, you, you guys are fully invested. You saw what I saw. Brent Venables, in, in not so many ways, took his players walked them to the line of scrimmage before the game and at kickoff and then during the first and second quarter and essentially had them yell across the line to De'Eric King, 
you cannot beat us throwing the ball. We dare you to try it. He couldn't do it. They got manned up on the outside. They got manhandled in ISO coverage on the outside by Clemson's DBs virtually all night. Uh, totally ineffective. No passing game to speak of. There was no functionality for Miami's offense. Clemson, on the other hand, ran 88 plays in this game. 6.2 yards per play. They, the Clemson Tigers, are 27-point favorites on the road this Saturday against Georgia Tech. Pitt comes to Miami Saturday. Miami, a 10-point favorite. All right, I got to calm myself before we talk about this next one. Auburn allegedly beat Arkansas 30 to 28. We made this call later in the week uh, based on some information that I was hearing last week, which came to fruition. Auburn was very badly banged up. Auburn was very sideways internally, didn't feel good about them. I thought they were in danger of losing the game outright. I gave out Arkansas plus the points. Didn't even care that we were only getting it at 13 and a half. I mean, this, this line eventually moved back up to 14. I didn't care. We were not going to need the points, and we didn't. They almost lost outright. Uh, Felipe Franks, let me get to him first. Big-time hat tip to Felipe Franks, quarterback at Arkansas. In a monsoon, Noah would have looked at Auburn yesterday and said, I'll pass on that. It was pouring down rain at Jordan-Hare Stadium. 22 of 30 for 318 yards, four touchdowns, and no picks. That was Felipe Franks, vagabond quarterback that showed up on the uh, doorstep at Fayetteville. Yeah, that Felipe Franks. Maybe he just needs it to rain more. Tank Bigsby. Now, this on Auburn side is really good news. Tank Bigsby is a guy I covered at Callaway High School down in Georgia. He carried Auburn, man. I mean, that ground game, they needed every one of these yards. 20 carries, 146 yards yesterday. So he's a true freshman. He's the best back they have right now. Arkansas had a win taken away from them. I want to pay pay close attention to what I'm saying now. Sometimes a bad call goes against you, and it's midway through the third quarter, and you look back and say, man, that one may have cost us. Well, it didn't help you, that's for sure. But very rarely can you look at a call and just outright say, we had a win taken away from us there. Arkansas had a win unjustly taken away from them yesterday. So my second hat tip has to go to Sam Pittman, who's the head coach at Arkansas now, because i got to be honest with you. If what happened to his team yesterday happened to me, I'd probably still be in jail. I'd be in a Lee County holding facility right now instead of on a plane going back home to Arkansas. I don't know how he maintained his composure. To think about the hours that you invest and to think about all you've had to overcome at Arkansas to even get a viable product on the field this year. And to watch what, if you're not familiar with what happened, you can go back and watch the replay. But essentially what happened is, Time was winding down. Auburn's driving. They're down one point. Arkansas's winning. It's not tied. Arkansas's winning. And there was a, an attempt to spike the ball, to stop the clock and set up a game-winning field goal. And because the snap was fumbled, Bo Nix, as he's been most of the season, gets really rattled. And he turns around and he spikes the ball. But that's not called a spike when you do it backwards. You know what it's called? It's called a fumble, thus a live ball. But what happened was you had officials who were anticipating instead of reacting. Kind of like if you're in a baseball game, to use another baseball analogy, back in the day when you used to have to throw four balls to intentionally walk a batter, about the time you get to ball two or ball three, I mean, you know what's coming next. So an umpire just kind of, ball three, ball four, take your base. Well, that's what happened yesterday with these officials. Problem is, something went awry. But because those officials were already anticipating, all right, here we go, he's going to spike it, he's going to spike it. When they saw something resembling a spike, they just blew it dead. Never thinking about the fact that the dude did it backwards. This ball is alive. And Auburn had no timeouts. So Arkansas recovered this football. But even if they didn't recover the ball, which the league claimed they didn't, even if they didn't recover the ball, Auburn recovers that ball, clocks winding down. There were under 20 seconds to go at the time the play eventually ends. And they were going to have to run out there for a 50-yard field goal with no timeouts. I don't even know if they would have gotten it off. Irrelevant. Because the play got blown dead. So you never had a chance to. Oh, and the clock stopped for them. So it was utter garbage to have that happen. And I, again, I got to credit Sam Pittman. I don't know how he maintained his composure, but oof, don't, don't anticipate. If you're an official, just react. You got time to react. Just react. Kentucky, let's check in. Uh, Kentucky played Mississippi State yesterday, and they won 24-2. So let's update you on the SEC's air raid takeover. It's been three weeks now since Mississippi State went on the road and took down LSU, which pretty much everyone's having an easy time doing these days, as it turns out. We were labeled deniers and bulldog haters on this show because we suggested 
that while we're willing to golf clap for Mississippi State, we thought that their week one win over LSU had no bearing and was able to tell us nothing about what they were going to be capable of the rest of the year. We just called it a standalone result. Well, now we're a few weeks removed. Let's check in and see who was right. Six quarters have passed since then now. No, really, I guess it's eight quarters. 16 total points. That includes a safety. K.J. Costello, who was your Week 1 Heisman Trophy winner, one touchdown and seven interceptions since the Week 1 win over LSU. We waited a little bit too late to hand this one out, and I was so mad at myself. I wanted the thing to come back down to three, and it never did. And I should have given it to you last week because I played it myself, but it doesn't matter what I play because I didn't give it to you. But we could have been 6-1 and one instead of 5-1 and one, is what I'm saying. There's an interesting game setting up this week. Kentucky goes to Tennessee. Tennessee's a five-point favorite. Five. Yeah, at home against Kentucky. So let's keep an eye on that. Mike Leach, I will tell you this. I don't have time to talk about it tonight. If you heard some of his comments after the game, he started essentially talking about finding out which players he's going to keep around over there. This is not the first time this dude has said this kind of stuff. He, he used to say it at Texas Tech. He used to say it at Washington State. The problem is the beats that cover those programs are a fraction of the size of the beats that cover you and the media attention you get in the SEC. Everything you say down here gets magnified. And one of the reasons, I've done a ton of talk shows over there, and people ask me, Kiffin or Leach, who's going to have more success? And I've said Kiffin in a heartbeat because Lane Kiffin is Ole Miss. He feels like Ole Miss to me. Leach is oil and water. And when you're winning, like if everything happened like it did in week one, it'd be okay. But when things have gone sideways now, and folks have pretty easily duplicated the blueprint shutting down that offense, and now he starts speaking like that, let me explain to you the dynamic in Starkville, Mississippi. In order to get that roster the way that you want it, you know what you got to have? you got to have high school talent from Mississippi. And you got to go into the same high schools, sometimes as a complete stranger, by the way. You are viewed as a newcomer in this conference. Even though you cut your teeth down here a generation ago, people view you as an outsider and a newcomer. You're going to go into some of these high schools where you just publicly said some of their former players aren't good enough, and you're going to purge them out of there, and you're going to walk in there expecting to be shown the front door and expecting to have the red carpet rolled out for you. And yeah, Mike, come on, we'll, we'll give you access to these guys. Absolutely. That's not the way that's going to happen. He is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way over there. So he's not going to be careful. He is not going to change his approach. You, you've either got to accept him or he'll just move on in a few years. But that's not a guy who's going to adapt to what someone else thinks he should be doing and how they think he should be acting. Last one I wanted to get to before we talk a little Bama, Georgia this week is North Carolina. Just one word here. They won against Virginia Tech 56-45. to And you just got to say, finally, fine. Everyone was waiting, including myself, for North Carolina to break out offensively. And they did. But you it didn't quite come in the way I thought it would. Sam Howell had a pretty good day through the year, definitely better than what he's had so far. But remember, the focus in this thing was on the thus far statistically elite run defense of North Carolina versus the thus far statistically elite rushing offense of Virginia Tech. And whoever won that battle was going to win the game. Virginia Tech ran it for 260. They didn't get shut down, but North Carolina ran it for 400 400. This is not the metric system. It is 400 yards they ran for. And they did it on 43 carries. I had stats and info crunch the numbers, friends. That's good for 9.3 yards per carry. Translation, every time they ran the ball, they essentially got a first down. Good for North Carolina, good for Mac Brown. All right, Colin, you know what week it is. Before we give out our early best bet, which is not on this game, we got to talk about it. Some early thoughts. Georgia at Alabama this Saturday. A lot of you were guessing about the opening spread. Uh, we thought that Alabama would be a five-point favorite. That's where they opened at Circa. They went briefly up to six. It's at four right now. So Alabama currently a four-point favorite at home over the Georgia Bulldogs. This is the game of the year in the SEC. There's no doubt about that. It's turned into a big rivalry. I have suggested there is ample hatred between these programs. And every time I say that, I don't know why it is. I get some Georgia folks and some Alabama folks who are very vocal in my mentions who disagree, and uh, I don't think that all of you feel the same way. These fan bases aren't monolithic where everyone just feels the same way, but there are a ton of you who have significant amounts of hatred 
for the other. You recruit against each other. You measure, especially Georgia measures themselves against Alabama. They haven't been able to beat them yet. But I'm telling you right now, if you think I'm lying, I want you to think about this. If you're a Bama fan, Georgia played Tennessee yesterday. Tennessee, according to some of you, is your biggest rival, if not your number two rival. It's either your number two or number one rival. Who are you guys pulling for? If you're a Bama fan, you pulling for Georgia or you pulling for Tennessee yesterday? Just be honest with yourself. When later in the year, Bama plays against Auburn, let's say no conference title scenarios are in play, if you're a Georgia fan, who are you pulling for? You guys have the deep South's oldest rivalry with Auburn. Who are you pulling for? Bama's going to play Tennessee in a couple of weeks. Who are you pulling for? I think we know the answer. So let's move on there. Uh, these are, to me, the two most elite units in the Southeastern Conference. This Georgia defense is out of this world phenomenal. So you're going to hear folks all week say, Bama has not faced a defense like this. And they're right. And then you're going to hear the opposite side yelling through the chain link fence. Well, uh, let me tell you something. Georgia hadn't faced an offense like this all year. And they're right. So I've been very surprised by what I've heard over the last 24 hours. I did some asking around. I did, did some feeling out. I did some reading. I did some scanning of message boards. And normally what you would expect in a game like this is you would expect supreme confidence really on both sides. I would especially expect supreme confidence since Georgia won yesterday. Bama kind of limped to a win. I mean, Georgia looked impressive winning their game yesterday. And yet, I, to a vast majority, saw the following. I saw Bama fans worried that they are not going to be able to get off the field on third down, which is viable. They haven't been able to do it all year. But then I saw Georgia fans very uncomfortable with the notion that they may not be able to keep up offensively as good as they are defensively. They don't think they're going to shut Alabama out, and they're worried that maybe their offense could stall. And I'm just looking around saying, what, what is happening here? This does not sound like the two fan bases I know. But I digress. Um, the freeze point theory is in full effect this week. We talked about that. We talk about it a lot, but we talked about it last week especially, and it, it very much applies against a defense as elite as Georgia's and against an offense as elite as Alabama's. And the freeze point theory is, of course, if you're not below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you cannot freeze a cup of water. Now, once you get below it, you know 20 degrees freezes faster than 31 degrees, but they're both going to freeze. But the point is, speaking about football teams, if you don't meet a certain threshold, you have zero chance of scoring against Georgia. If you meet that threshold, then how far past it you are, that determines how much you're able to score. How much success are you able to have? Well, Bama meets the threshold, obviously. And conversely, A&M did not meet the threshold. A&M's a pretty good team. But defensively, they didn't meet the threshold, the minimum threshold, that freeze point. They were like 35 degrees. And so Bama just scored on them all day. In other words, the water never froze. Well, Georgia's well below freezing, okay? And they're well down into the 20s, maybe the teens. So they can freeze you, and they can do it pretty quick. How far below that threshold are they? How far past it are they? That's the fun part here, because it's the first time that each of those units have faced in the opposition someone who meets the freeze point and exceeds the freeze point. Georgia, I w I'm very excited about their pass rush. I've watched them try against Alabama a couple of times, and they've been right there, and any given time, they have been able to say, if we had a notch betters pass rush, we'd probably win this game. Well, they got it now. They've been pressuring the quarterback. They are as multiple, as I told you, and as deep and as versatile as they've ever been. And Alabama does not have the element of mobility at quarterback that they have had in the past. So I don't know what Matt Jones is going to do Saturday night. I know where he's going to be every snap. I didn't necessarily know where Jalen Hurts was going to be or Tua was going to be. I know where Matt Jones is going to be. Now, I also know this is a prolific offense, prolific. But I will say this. Alabama had had some trouble getting that run game going, and they finally got it going last night. I've watched every snap of Alabama football this year. I got a lot of respect for Najee Harris. I think Najee Harris is going to have a tough time against Georgia. I'm just being honest with you. I think any back that Alabama puts out there is going to have a tough time against Georgia. And I think that's going to be, well, obviously by design. But Kirby Smart's going to be okay with them picking up a first down or two on the ground, uh, they, are, they are not letting receivers get behind those safeties right, if they can help it. It's not going to be a repeat of Texas A&M, in other words. But on the other side with Alabama, they're capable of getting off to a fast start. I think it's imperative for them because I'll tell you what they can't have. What they can't have is a replay of that LSU game last year. Or, to be honest with you, the last couple of times they played Georgia. Like, Georgia has owned the early portions of these games against Alabama. LSU owned the early portion of the game against Alabama last year. And you're in catch-up mode. And that's not what you want. Your best chance of winning this game 
and you got a better than 50% chance of doing it. You are favored, after all. But your best shot of winning this game is obviously getting the early lead and finally putting Georgia in a position not like Tennessee did yesterday. Tennessee had a lead. They didn't make Georgia uncomfortable a second. When Smart says we didn't flinch, they didn't flinch. Bama gets a 14-0 lead. Bama gets 10-0 lead. There's a little bit more hesitancy. There's a little bit more puckering. There's a little bit more of a flinch because you know they're not done scoring in all likelihood. And you know now you're going to have to take some chances offensively you haven't had to all year. And you kind of take that unit, that offensive unit, and you get them out into the deep end the first time. And you find out if they can swim the first time. So it's a fascinating matchup. It's fascinating because I do not believe that Alabama's ground game is capable of taking over. I don't believe any ground game is capable of taking over against Georgia. Let me put it that way. Conversely, while I look at Zamir White and I look at Kenny McIntosh and I, I look at Kendall Milton, I look at their running backs in aggregate, and they got a really good running back core at Georgia. I, I'm, I'm far more interested in whether Bama just has the horses to stop them. I don't think Alabama has the personnel that they've had. I talked to someone there last night. I mean, they got some big bodies they brought in in the last couple of recruiting classes, and it's obvious they don't feel they're ready to go yet or else they'd be on the field. But i got to be honest with you, man. It's going to be a really interesting week of practices. We're going to have our ear to the ground with both of those squads because, uh, especially with Alabama, I don't know how you don't overturn some things there this week. This is the last week of the season. You want to be overturning things, though. So we are going to have our full breakdown and our full wall-to-wall prediction along with our game capsule and our in-house model and what it says on this game come Tuesday night. So make sure you tuned in for that. As I said, the Ramen Noodle Express, to wrap the show up here, we always give our early best bet out. It was 5-1 and one this week. We are sitting at 58% against the number. Uh, this is not a number that I just randomly throw out. All of these are documented. You can go back and watch the shows yourself. So we got a, we got a number that we want to get on, and we already did. A lot of times I put this out even before the show. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. I give a lot of stuff out there. It's not always on the show. Also, make sure you're listening to the Late Kick podcast because sometimes we'll spill them on there too. So just make sure you're following us everywhere you can follow us. We are going with Virginia minus two at Wake Forest. We have this up near a touchdown. We have a large discrepancy between this line and the Vegas number. And so we're going to take the Virginia Cavaliers minus two as our first of at least five official plays. We've had more than five the last couple of weeks. So make sure you're following me on Twitter for that. Colin, I got to be honest, probably the biggest winner this week is me betting that we could do this show in under an hour. And we did it. We are done. Under an hour. And we got it out of the way. It's going to be an extremely jam-packed week. As I said, it is Georgia-Alabama week, so we're going to blow that coverage out of the water. Uh, It is a do-or-die time in the swamp for LSU and uh, Florida. So we got a whole lot to talk about this week. Make sure you watch every show. Don't miss a show. Like the video if you haven't already. Subscribe to the channel. We had over 1,500 new subscribers last week. Thank you so much for that. It gets noticed more than you could ever imagine it gets noticed. And so just do all those things and we'll be happy. For Director Colin, for Jordan on the podcast side, I'm Josh Pate. Take care. Have a great week. Looking forward to it. And God bless.